Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 325 of Forgotten Classics, where we get everything explained. It is the finale of Oh, Murderer Mine by Norbert Davis, featuring Doan and Carstairs, our favorite detective duo. But before that, I wanted to tell you about a TV show I discovered. This is one that my daughter Rose really had been pushing for a while, and it was just enough work to watch it because it's sequential, and so you can't just pick it up midway and get everything. That I was like, oh, I have to go to the TV website. I have to watch it there. Yeah, because I'm super lazy. That's how that works. But She's now living with us, as I've mentioned, and it's a wonderful experience. And one of the wonderful things is she's like, I'll help you. So let me tell you about The Good Place. It stars Kristen Bell, who was in Veronica Mars, which I liked a lot. And it stars Ted Danson, who long, long ago was in Cheers, so long ago that Rose did not even know who he was. And I have to say, when I first saw the show mentioned, I was interested because of Kristen Bell, but Ted Dance and I went, eh, I don't know. Actually, it works out great. So the premise of the show is that Eleanor, played by Kristen Bell, died in a freak accident, wakes up and finds out she's in the good place, not the bad place. And she's being praised for all her humanitarian work and her good efforts on the behalf of others. And she just keeps her mouth shut because she realizes somehow there's been a terrible mistake or a wonderful mistake from her point of view. She was not that really nice person. She was pretty terrible and not terrible in the way of dealing drugs and stuff, but just super selfish and kind of mean and kind of in an everyday way but not with any redeeming qualities. So when you get to the good place, your soulmate is there. And when Eleanor meets her soulmate, she discovers that he was a professor of ethics and morality. So who better to teach her how to be good? This is really decided upon after they hear a recording of what's happening in the bad place. And believe me, nobody wants to go to the bad place. Her soulmate is not Ted Danson. Ted Danson has a kind of a supervisory character for the area they're living in. And if you watch it, I'll just let you discover that for yourself. What makes it a little more interesting is not only is she trying to be good, and this is really, really hard, but each show from about episode three or four on, as her soulmate is helping her discover what it means to be good, because he was a professor of morality, he's focusing on different philosophers and philosophies. And each one is kind of summed up extremely simply. But what you realize later is that the plot is echoing that philosophical concept. So you're kind of seeing how does it play out in quote, real life. So that gives it a little more depth. And I know that last one I watched, halfway through the episode, I realized I was trying really hard to keep in mind, what was the main point of utilitarianism, because I knew that was going to be a key point in making this plot work, which it was. 
but I really liked that it was also kind of giving me a basic primer on these concepts. Now, whether I remember them, I don't know. But last night, Rose went, you're thinking kind of like a utilitarianism person. And I went, yes. <laughs> so it's sinking in a little. Anyway, I enjoy it a lot. It does not have a lot of the stupid humor that you find in a lot of TV shows. It can be a little basic or obvious occasionally, but that's not a big deal. And also there are great pleasures to it, like the set design and um, just some of the basic quirks that they're beginning to build upon. So I highly encourage you to go try The Good Place. Now, back to our own good place, which is full of murder. Oh, murderer mine. Well, last time was full of excitement. For one thing, we discovered Morales' true identity, but can we trust him? He had that fake story about Horace Trent. So, what's up with that? Also, oh my gosh, could it have ended any better for a Halloween-type ending? They're in the mansion. The lines have been cut. Heloise is dead. The murderer is creeping around, shooting people, and Don and Carstairs are there to try and save the day, but very cautious, because this murderer is good with a gun. All right, let's find out. Who is it? And how do they stop him? And why is it all happening? It's all here in the finale. Let's dive in. Chapter 6 Trent and Melissa waited tautly. The silence pressed in on them as thick as black butter. One sentry crawled past, and then another. Doan's revolver thudded. Trent jumped involuntarily, and Melissa whimpered against his coat. The silence crept back and surrounded them. Doan's revolver thudded again. The twenty-two cracked back at it spitefully this time. Someone yelled, fiercely incoherent. Feet raced across bare flooring. Something fell over with a crash that made the air shudder. A door slammed dully. I can't take this, Trent said. I've got to help him. You stay here. Oh no, oh no. Stay right close behind me then. Walk in step with me. They went out into the hall like a queer four-legged bug. Melissa was clutching the back of Trent's coat in both fists. She could feel the muscles in his back, rigid and tensed. They moved slowly, and the darkness moved right with them, unchanging. Steps, Trent whispered. They went up them, a lot of them. And then there was a cold, slow click just over their heads. Doan said, Trent? Yes. You're lucky, said Doan. That's the time you didn't get killed. Come on up here. They were in a hall. Did you hit him when you shot? Trent asked. Hell no. I did run him into the bedroom there, though. The one behind that door. And if he thinks I'm going in there after him, he's crazy. Carstairs barked from somewhere outside on an inquiring note. Doan cupped his hands and bellowed through them. Yeah, I'm still with you. Stay out there. Watch. Carstairs barked again, momentarily pacified. Well, what are we going to do now? Trent asked. 
Call the cops, Doan said, keeping his gun pointed at the bedroom door. Let them root him out. They're expendable. The telephone line is cut. It was cut at the same time the lights were switched off. Melissa was talking on it. This guy, said Doan, thinks of everything. Okay, we'll starve him out. How are we fixed for supplies? Have you got a drink on you? No. All right, go on down and unlock the servants. Send a bottle back up here by one of them. We'll fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. Trent said uneasily, Maybe he'll shoot through the door at us. Not that door. It's a two-inch hardwood slab. A twenty-two won't punch through it. The twenty-two smacked from inside the bedroom. Carstairs yelled in furious indignation. The twenty-two smacked again instantly. Carstairs bellowed right back, but the tone of his voice was slightly muffled now. <sighs> Don't let his breath out. He got undercover again. He's going to get his brains blown out if he doesn't stop playing around. Carstairs, stay where you are! Down! Keep down! Carstairs barked once, defiantly. Then he cut loose in a continuous, urgent, racketing uproar. What now? said Doan, listening tensely. Wood creaked faintly. He's climbing out the window! Doan exclaimed. He aimed his revolver at the lock on the door and fired, and then fired again. Wood splintered, and the smell of burned powder was sharp and acrid in the hall. Doan slammed his heel against the door above the lock, slammed it again below the lock. He shouldered into the door hard, hammering at the lock with the butt of his revolver. Metal gave with a sudden rasp, and the door banged violently open. Doan fell flat on his stomach, half in and half out of the bedroom. Revolver pushed ahead of him. He stayed that way, rigid, watching. What? Trent whispered, crouched against the wall beside the doorway. What? Doan spoke without turning his head. I think he's on the trellis outside the window. Moving vines made a leafy, ripping sound. Yeah, said Doan, lunging to his feet. Carstairs! Carstairs! Guard! Carstairs roared willingly from outside and below. The vines crackled. Now what will I do? Doan demanded. If I poke my head outside that window, he'll pop it off for me. If I run outside, he'll come back in this way. Another bedroom, Trent suggested. The vines rattled and slithered more loudly. Back, Doan ordered urgently. He's coming back up. Get out of the doorway. Something crawled up eerily at the lower corner of the open window. Moonlight glinted on the long, pencil-like barrel of the twenty-two pistol. It groped around blindly and then suddenly spat. Flames streaked slantwise toward the ceiling. Ah, said Doan. He was aiming carefully with his revolver, steadying his right wrist with his left hand. He fired. The twenty-two automatic spun up into the air, glistening sleekly, and then thudded loosely on the floor. I did it, Doan chortled. I've always wanted to, and I did it. I shot a gun out of a guy's hand. Come in off that vine, screw loose, and don't try any funny work. I'm as good as Red Rider. Wood suddenly tore loose in a long-drawn, ripping screech. What? said Doan. He raced across the bedroom to the window with Melissa and Trent stumbling along behind him. The moon was ghastly bright now, and in its light, suspended incredibly in space, ten feet out from the window, was something large and black, black and crouched 
and malignant that screeched at them. The latticework was propping it up there, unbelievably, like a weirdly extended clumsy stilt. Then the lattice swayed further and lost its last hold on the wall with a series of popping reports and began to fall, crumbling in on itself, away from the house. The black figure mouthed incoherent, terrified sounds, twisting in the air, and directly under it, gleaming like quicksilver, was the slickly sullen surface of Heloise's swimming pool. The lattice hit the edge of the pool and the water opened up with a resounding boom. Carstairs raced his shadow across the lawn and skidded on the edge of the pool. Carstairs, Don shouted, stay out of there. Let him drown and save the state money. Stay out. Carstairs dove into the pool. Oh, hell's fire, Don exclaimed angrily. He whirled away from the window and ran out of the bedroom. Trent tore down the stairs after him, jerking Melissa along behind with a vice-like grip on her wrist. They drummed along the hall and out the front door and around the side of the house. Doan pulled out ahead of them, going down the slope of the lawn, his heels grated on the tiled edge of the pool. The surface of the water was ripped and torn to froth, and then Carstairs' head heaved up out of it. He had a black, chunky, limp arm gripped in his jaws, and he was coughing in half-strangled snorts. "'Let go!' Doan yelled. "'Let him drown! Who cares? Come here! Here! Here!' Carstairs kept his grip and plowed away determinedly at the water. He came agonizingly closer. Doan leaned far out and grabbed the arm. All right, so you're a hero. Let go. Doan heaved back, and the black, ugly form slithered wetly out of the edge of the pool. Doan kicked it aside. Sit on him for a minute, he ordered no one in particular. Carstairs, now come here, stupid. Here. Carstairs floundered against the side wall, and Doan got him by the collar. He hauled. Carstairs' forelegs flopped out on the tile. His back legs churned powerfully at the water. He came up and out suddenly, snorting and dripping. Doan fell over backwards. Now watch out! Don't! Ow! Carstairs walked right over his prone form. He stepped aside, but not far enough aside, and shook himself. Whoosh! Doan spluttered. He sat up, wiping his face. I'm going to kill you someday. I mean that seriously. Carstairs stopped shaking and sat down and began to pant victoriously. Melissa said in a small, stunned voice, Mr. Doan, this, this, this is Professor Slaymynick. Yep, said Doan, getting to his feet. Let's see if he's still working. He knelt down beside the wet black form. Professor Slaymynick's thin face was bluish and distorted, and little bubbles burst frothily on his lumpy mustache. Doan probed with exploring fingers. Cracked his skull, he stated. Must have hit the bottom of the pool. He'll probably live, though. But, but did he? He did, said Doan cheerfully. He's your little old prowler in person. Oh, Melissa exclaimed. Then there was something awful and familiar. But what was he doing in my apartment? Just like I told you, he thought he was in Trent's apartment. What did he want in my apartment? Trent demanded. I think he was going to fix up a nice little booby trap for you. That's why he had both the knife and the gun with him. He probably had a strip of rubber inner tubes and some nails with him, too. 
He was going to fasten the knife to the tube and the tube to the nails in such a way that when you opened the drawer, the tube would stretch and then flip the knife in your face. It's easy to fix up a trap like that if you know how. With a knife? Trent said doubtfully. That seems sort of uncertain. He didn't want to kill you. I mean, he didn't care whether he did or not. He just wanted to remove you from the campus. It didn't matter whether you were removed to the hospital or to the morgue. And Frank Ames? Melissa said. There he was, turning his car around when Slay Meinick walked right out into the alley and into Ames' headlights, busily engaged in peeling off that stocking mask. Ames recognized him at once. He stopped the car and got out to see what in the devil he was up to. You can see the fix that put Slay Meinick in. There wasn't any story he could dream up that would pacify Ames permanently, because when Ames found out that the Prowler had socked Melissa one, Ames was going to sound off like a fire siren. Slay Meinick is not a man who takes long to make up his mind. He hadn't used his knife yet, and so now he did. He cut Ames' throat and dumped him in that garbage can, hoping to be able to drive in the alley and pick him up and tote him off somewhere and bury him. But he couldn't put that last idea over. Carstairs and I came snooping around after him. He shot at us, and then he had to scram. Melissa said, And, and Beulah? Remember what I said about how I went into her apartment and listened around? She couldn't have heard you yip if her door had been shut. I think she had her door open a little. I think she was snooping just like the Aldriches were. I think she wanted to see whether or not Ames came up to your apartment with you. Melissa nodded slowly. Beulah was a little like that. She was nosy. And this time it was fatal. She saw the prowler. He ran past her door on the way out. I don't think she recognized him positively or she would have said so. But she saw enough to make her wonder because she was already wondering. Remember what she said when we were first talking about Slay Meinick? She said he was a good biochemist, meaning he had been. Physics is sort of close to biochemistry, and Beulah Porter Cowis must have spotted something that Slay Meinick did or said that made her a little leery. I mean, I suppose she was just sort of wondering about it vaguely, and this was something added. In any event, I'm sure she went around and talked to him the next morning, and he must have told her something that pacified her for the moment. What? Trent demanded. I have no idea. He's a slicker. Anyway, Beulah Porter Cowis made a very bad mistake after that. She went to Heloise's place. That cooked her goose. I don't know whether she went there just to get her face fixed or whether she had some other reason. Neither did Slay Meinick, I suppose. But he couldn't take a chance on her talking to Heloise about him. Carstairs' riot gave him his chance, although he would have managed it by some hook or crook anyway. That sort of wiped things up for Slay Meinick. He'd had such bad luck running into Ames and getting spotted by Beulah Porter Cowis, but now they were cleared away. And he went back after you again. He shied that tile at you. That probably wouldn't have killed you unless it hit you in the head, but it wouldn't have done you much good either. Trent said, But why? Carstairs growled. Doan whipped around alertly, jerking the revolver from under his coat. There was a man walking down the slope of the lawn toward them, slowly and portentously, his shadow jigging eerily thin ahead of him. It's Morales, Melissa gasped. Not anymore, said Doan. 
Now it's Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz, the great detective. How do you do? said Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz. I see that by sheer luck you have managed to capture my quarry. You probably have no admissible evidence against him, so it is fortunate that I have arrived. What evidence have you? Trent demanded. An unassailable case. I always make certain that I have an unassailable case before I make an arrest. This man is demonstrably and unmistakably guilty of the murder of Herbert Big Tub Tremaine in a cottage on the outskirts of Piedras Negras, state of Coahuila, Mexico, seven months and eleven days ago. Who? Trent said sharply. What? said Melissa. Big Tub Tremaine? She stared accusingly at Doan. You told me he had committed suicide. I thought he had, said Doan. He looked at Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz. Your authority should file a little clearer reports. I suppose they do seem a little complicated to the dull-minded, Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz answered indifferently. Doan said to Melissa, The report said just what I told you that Tremaine had heaved himself in the drink in front of a lot of witnesses, and that they'd had a lot of trouble fishing him out again. Well, the trouble was that it took them four days to recover his body, and by that time he was chewed all to pieces. But you said... He said... I will explain the matter, said Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz, because it involves some very brilliant feats of scientific detection. Big Tub Tremaine wished to flee from Mexico because he had embezzled some money from his wife. He had formerly worked in carnivals. He went down to Skid Row, a region in Los Angeles frequented by many vagrants, and located a character, a man he had known formerly in his carnival days, called Bumbershoot Benny. Bumbershoot Benny, Trent said numbly. Yes. Big Tub Tremaine hailed him with great joviality as a dear old pal. Big Tub Tremaine was going on a vacation trip to Mexico, he said, and nothing would do but that his old friend Bumbershoot Benny should accompany him. But first, he must buy Bumbershoot Benny a new outfit of clothes. To show his great generosity and good heart, he would buy Bumbershoot Benny an outfit as good as the one he was wearing himself. In fact, he would buy Bumbershoot Benny an outfit exactly like the one he was wearing. He did. Oh, said Trent. Then, said Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz, They started in Big Tub Tremaine's car for Ensenada. Somewhere along the road, as yet I don't know just where, Big Tub Tremaine killed Bumbershoot Benny by beating him over the head with a tire iron. Then he tied a rope around Bumbershoot Benny and threw him in the surf where there were some sharp rocks. He let Bumbershoot Benny grind against the rocks for two days until he was completely disfigured. Then he pulled the body in and put it in the rumble seat of his car. Oh, said Melissa sickly. And then, 
said Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz. He drove to Ensenada. He picked an appropriate spot and secretly and by stealth threw Bumbershoot Benny in the ocean again. Next, he put on a noisy performance in a bar, threatening loudly and dramatically to drown himself. Then he ran forth into the darkness, pursued by the people in the bar and dove into the ocean. There was a wind and the water was rough. It was at night, you remember. He swam underwater away from the searchers, came ashore, and went his way. The police kept on searching until they found Bumbershoot Benny's body, wearing Big Tub Tremaine's ring and his wristwatch, with Big Tub Tremaine's wallet in the pocket of his suit that obviously fit the body and exactly matched the description of the clothes Big Tub Tremaine was wearing. It is quite understandable that in the circumstances they identified Bumbershoot Benny's body as that of Big Tub Tremaine. And, and what next? Melissa asked. Big Tub Tremaine wandered around under various aliases in Mexico for some two years. Finally, he came to Piedras Negras, where he fell in with the murderous Slaymeinik. And you can see what a temptation he offered to Slaymeinik. He was already supposed to be dead, and in any event, he was wanted as a criminal. He still had some of the money he had embezzled. Slay Meinick murdered him and buried him in the patio of the cottage. Oh, said Melissa. But what in the world? Pardon me, I am not finished yet. Slay Meinick came to the university, thinking his murderous secret was safe forever. But he reckoned without Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz. I followed him relentlessly, and all would have been well if you had not appeared. Me, said Trent. Yes, naturally Slay Meinick's evil conscience bothered him. He thought that Big Top Tremaine's wife had gotten some inkling of his guilt and had set you to spy on him. He tried to get rid of you as he brushed aside the other fools who got in his way. Wait a minute, said Trent. Why did you break my instruments? I didn't. Slay Meinick did that in an outburst of rage because he missed you with that title he threw. Why didn't you say he did it at the time? Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz said, Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz has a reputation. I did not intend to have Slay Meinick arrested until I was ready to do it myself. Slay Meinick murdered Heloise. You caused her death by not speaking up about him when you should have. Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz shrugged magnificently. What of it? She is not Mexican. She was only an American. Well, so was Big Tub Tremaine. That is an entirely different matter. It must be known to all evildoers that they cannot murder anyone, not even an American in the state of Coahuila, without answering to Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz. Now, I have wasted enough time here. You, Don, pick up the culprit and carry him to my car. I will go through the formalities and then return him to Mexico to meet his fate. He's wanted here for a few murders, Don said. That is immaterial. I have a federal warrant certified and cleared by the State Department. It takes precedence over local authority. 
Who's the warrant for? Doan asked. For Sleimanik, naturally. Then it's no good, because this guy on the ground isn't Sleimanik. Are you insane? Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz demanded. No. You did all right with your detection, but you didn't look hard enough at matters before you started. Just consider for a moment. On the one hand, we have Big Tub Tremaine, a carnival tough guy, an embezzler, and a murderer at least once. I think he'd done in several here or there before Bumbershoot Benny, because you don't learn as much as he knew about murder just overnight. And on the other hand, you have Professor Slay Meinick, a poor, beaten-up biochemist on the run from the Gestapo. Slay Meinick and Big Tub Tremaine met in Piedras Negras, and one did the other in. Which one would be most likely to be the murderer? Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz said some things to himself in firecracker Spanish. Doan smiled. <laughs> sure, you slipped because Professor Slay Meinick turned up and took his job as big as life. What are you talking about? Trent demanded. Professor Slay Meinick didn't kill Big Tub Tremaine. Big Tub Tremaine murdered Slay Meinick. That's Big Tub Tremaine dying right there. Oh, Melissa gasped. Oh, don't you see what a wonderful deal this was for him? Doan asked. Big Tub Tremaine wanted to get back to the States. Probably he was fed up with Mexico and tortillas and enchiladas and frijoles and everything else Mexican, even the senoritas. That's the way it is with most fugitives. Before they commit their crimes, they gloat over the dough they're going to grab and the life of luxury they're going to lead in some faraway climb. But once they beat it out of the country, they get homesick, and the thing they want most in the world is to get back. I'm beginning to catch on, said Melissa. Of course, said Doan. Big Tub was afraid if he came back and the cops didn't spot him, his wife would. A fate worse than a rest. Exactly, said Doan. So he needed some place to hide, Melissa went on. Also, he needed some identity other than his own and a means of occupying himself respectably so that no one would suspect who he actually was. Smart girl, Doan told her. Slay Meinick's identity was ready-made for Big Tub. It included a job at a good salary in a nice, refined, quiet place, the university, to hide as long as he wanted to. It was ideal. The fact that it was quite near to where his wife had her beauty salon made little or no difference. When people are looking for something, they're less likely to find it when it's stuck right under their nose. But Big Tub Tremaine wasn't a biochemist, Trent objected. How could he hope to get away with such a disguise? You forget, said Doan. He was a one-time medicine show spieler. He could talk the lingo of drugs and chemicals and bell jars and test tubes right out of the pharmacopoeia. Whether or not what he said would make sense is something else again. But who were his undergraduate listeners to question whether the stuff their eminent European professor was giving them was straight from the shoulder fact or carnival double talk? Carstairs moved about restlessly, stopped in front of Doan, looked up, and yawned. I know, Doan told him. I bore you. But there are others present, and they are interested. So keep still for a minute until I'm finished. Carstairs lay down, crossed his paws, and closed his eyes. Sure, said Doan. For a long while, Big Tub's disguise was perfect. He always had the Gestapo to fall back on, remember? Maybe he didn't know quite as much as he should about biochemistry. Well, 
Kamala's mind was confused and had been ever since he left Hungary. The Gestapo knocked a good part of his knowledge out of him. And suppose he didn't look exactly like the old sleigh Meinik. The Gestapo had disfigured him. And suppose he dodged people. The Gestapo had made him shy. Any possible slip he made, he could blame the Gestapo. And no one would question him because his nerves were in such bad shape. Poor man. I noticed he was pretty jumpy, Eric Trent said. He was standing talking to Doan, but looking at and leaning close to Melissa, and there was an expression on his face which seemed to indicate that he was thinking about something entirely different from what he was saying. I noticed he was exceptionally jumpy every time that Shirley Parker was around. He avoided her like the plague. He had a reason there, Doan told him. Shirley's a psychologist, isn't she? At any rate, a graduate student in psychology... And these psychologists and psychiatrists and the like have a way of seeing right through fakers and spotting a liar as soon as they talk to one. This guy was afraid of Shirley for that reason. It's a wonder he didn't murder her too, which would have been a shame, because aside from being a psychologist, she's a remarkably pretty girl. Thinking the matter over and remembering the difficulty she was having getting together her material on sex, I wonder if I couldn't be of some help to her, maybe in a personal way. Do either of you happen to know her telephone number? Never mind that now, Melissa said. You tell us the rest. Quick. There isn't much rest. Everything was going along as smooth as silk for Big Tub. He knew nothing about Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz, alias Morales, trailing him. And then Trent had to turn up. That blew things sky high. Big Tub knew who Trent was. He'd been keeping track of Heloise. He knew Trent was separated from her, but he knew very well that wasn't the end of the story. He knew Heloise didn't let go of things that were hers that easily. He knew she'd start hanging around the university, and if she did, sooner or later, she was going to spot Big Tub. No disguise would fool her for an instant. If she spotted him, she'd have him in jail before he could wink. And that would mean getting it in the neck for Bumbershoot Benny and Slay Meinik on top of the embezzlement wrap. He had to get Trent away from the university, and that was just what he was trying so hard to do. You told us about that, Melissa said. She, too, was talking to Doan, but she was looking at Trent, who was still looking at her, and between them there seemed to be an intimacy born of a new discovery or a new thought. That's what started the whole thing off. Slay Mining or Big Tub or whoever was fixing up a booby trap for Eric when I waltzed in and caught it in the noggin. That's right, said Doan. But Ames and Beulah. They got in his way. He was desperate. He had two murders, and probably more, behind him. He couldn't take any chances at all. He couldn't afford to have any attention directed toward him. He swatted them like the ordinary person would a couple of flies. Ames, because Ames had seen him. And Beulah Porter Cowes, because she was nosing around and might say something to Heloise that would point Heloise at Big Tub alias Slay Meinick. He could easily prowl around in the beauty salon. He used to loaf there all the time. He knew the place like the palm of his hand. And Carstairs gave him a nice assist. I still want to know, Trent said, why he smashed up my instruments. You and your silly instruments, said Melissa, but there was no malice in her voice. They are not silly and they are damned expensive, Doan said. He did that to cover himself after he missed with the tile and spotted Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz watching him. 
He was going to play his goofy blame-it-on-the-Gestapo game. Sebastian Rodriguez Ruiz saved him the trouble by inventing that business about Thunderbirds. And another thing, said Trent, what about my so-called brother, Horace? Sebastian Rodriguez Ruiz told Humphrey that, because he thought Humphrey might possibly be bright enough to figure out that if Sebastian Rodriguez Ruiz hadn't busted those instruments, only one other person could have. Sebastian Rodriguez Ruiz did not intend to let Humphrey arrest the bird he thought was Slay Meinick, so he pulled a herring in the shape of some non-existent scrolls across the track. And you went off with the two of them and left me alone with Big Tub Tremaine. After he just got through trying to cave my head in with a tile, you're one hell of a bodyguard. You were as safe as if you were in church, Doan assured him. He wouldn't have dared make a move after that close shave. If he had killed you, even Humphrey would have known who did it. That would have been a big consolation, said Trent. Oh, Doan, said Melissa, how awful! To think you could have been so heartless as to leave poor Eric alone and unarmed and unprotected in the company of this awful, awful person. I wouldn't have believed it of you. I've a good mind to strike your name off my list of nice people. Don looked at her blankly. Your attitude, he said, toward this guy, Eric. What's happened to change your attitude? Never mind, said Melissa. I want to know about Heloise. Sebastian Rodriguez Ruiz went around to see her, Don explained. He turned to the Mexican. Didn't you do that? Naturally, said Sebastian Rodriguez Ruiz. He was looking very gloomy and very sullen and as though he had lost his last friend in the world somewhere far south of the Rio Grande. Don said... Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz here wanted to know if there had been any previous connection, before Piedras Negras, I mean, between Big Tub and Slay Meinick. And, while he was at Heloise's, he showed her a picture of the fake Slay Meinick. So much is my assumption. Now let's see if I'm not correct. Again, he turned to the Mexican detective. Isn't that what happened? Naturally. But Heloise fooled you. She didn't admit she knew him, did she? No, but she did, said Doan, and how she did. She recognized her dear departed husband's puss instantly, but Heloise never did anything without figuring what effect it would have on the business of Heloise of Hollywood. And this was something to chew on, two murders and a dead husband showing up, but more to the point, a husband she'd feel fine about never seeing again, inasmuch as she'd already proclaimed to the world her marriage to Eric and his great love for her despite her age, not to mention the amount of money she'd invested in an advertising campaign emphasizing just those features. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Trent shouted suddenly and loudly. I knew there was something if I could just think of what it was, and now I've got it. I've got it, too cried Melissa joyously. Oh, Eric, Eric, isn't it wonderful, wonderful? Carstairs woke up suddenly and stared at them in amazement. They were dancing around like children at a maypole. Well, I'll be a double-dyed Mexican blanket if I know what's going on here, Doan said. Naturally, spoke up Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz, alias Morales, a worried and puzzled look on his dark face. Oh, you dopes, Melissa taunted them. Oh, 
you two big stupid lumps who call yourself detectives? Isn't it perfectly obvious? Can't you see it? Why, Eric isn't married, isn't even a widower, hasn't been married at all, with Heloise married to Big Tub, who wasn't dead like everyone thought. Then her marriage to Eric couldn't be legal. Oh, wonderful, wonderful! Yeah, yeah, said Doan. I get that, but really the excitement, the cause for all this celebration. Well, really, it escapes me, unless... He stopped talking and smiled broadly. Not married, said Trent dazedly. Think of that. A bachelor never married at all. Don't fret about it, darling, Melissa told him. You soon will be. But go on, Doan. I forgive you for everything. I'll even go so far as to put your name back on my list. Doan sighed a deep sigh and started all over again. So, Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz went to see Heloise and got himself played for a sucker. Then, Heloise got rid of him and started figuring. She thought she could handle Big Tub. She had 20 servants and a gun, and she was tough. She called him up and told him she'd give him a 24-hour start, or some kind of a start. She wanted to get rid of him without scandal. Big Tubbs started, all right, in her direction. She had lots of jewelry, and he needed some fast dough. He came in the back way and gathered up the servants, singly or in batches, and locked them away in the cellar. Then he interviewed her with his gun. He must have been getting the shakes pretty badly by this time. He was playing in hellish luck. I don't think he heard you two arrive. About that time, he was up in the back bedroom fiddling around in Heloise's wall safe. The first he knew about you was when the phone rang. There's an extension in the bedroom. He heard you talking and hiked down and cut the wires and switched off the lights and locked the door on you and was waltzing out the front when he met me. There was a sudden raging roar in the night, and Humphrey came billowing down the lawn toward them, pumping his legs furiously and waving his fists in the air. You, he shouted. As soon as I heard over the radio that there was some kind of a riot up here, I said to myself, it's that damned doan again. And sure enough, here you are. I've had enough of you. I've had all I'm going to take. What have you done to poor Professor Slay Meinick? Look at him lying there all wet and cold and unconscious, if not dead. Don't try to lie to me, Doan. I warn you, you're under arrest right now. Now relax, Doan advised. I've just caught your murderer for you. He fell off the trellis there into the swimming pool and... What? Humphrey blurted. Fell in the pool. He ran to the edge and peered tensely in. Where? Where? There was a sudden streak of fawn-colored shadow. A big body ran through Trent's legs and brushed past Melissa and made for Humphrey with the speed of a maddened goat, horns lowered, who's been waiting a long, long time for just the right opportunity. Car stairs, Doan yelled frantically. Don't you do it. Don't you dare. Humphrey shrieked and leaped right straight ahead, clutching his rear with both hands. The water swallowed him up with a cold and gleeful gulp. Car stairs, Doan yelled. You imbecile. You know he'll blame me for that. Do you want to see me in the gas chamber? Do you want to see me in jail for life? Car stairs ignored him. 
Carstairs was contemplating the frothy, turgid water in the pool with the remotely sadistic indifference of a scientist studying a pinned-down bug. And Eric and Melissa ignored him, too. For the moment, they were too occupied with each other to have any interest in external affairs. Melissa's arms were about Trent's neck, and he was holding her so closely that no biochemist or meteorologist or physicist or psychologist or any other scientist could have presented a logical explanation of how it was that she could breathe. But she could. Even though her lips were pressed close to his lips, and when their kiss was ended, she sighed rapturously and long. Not married, Eric told her in a perfectly audible whisper. Not married, and never married to that old crow. God rest her. Now I have a right to ask you, without any strings attached to it, I can offer you my name. You can be... Stop, stop, Melissa cried, hugging him to her. It's going to make you mad, maybe, but I can't help myself. I've just got to say it. It's too funny. If I don't say it, I'll burst. Now I can be, can be Mrs. Handsome Lover Boy. There, I've done it. Don't strike me, Eric. Don't. Oh, oh, you aren't striking me. Oh, oh. Naturally said Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz, alias Morales, watching the young couple go back into their clinch. Naturally, he said again, and for the first time that evening smiled his broad Latin smile. The End